a bank that is headquartered in the middle of the country uh, has a in a state where their population of Hispanics is almost zero percent, um, and they say, "Hey, you know, they're looking at the same numbers we are. We got 60 million people here. We're not addressing them. We're not available in Spanish. Let's do this. Let's go after this market." And they say, "Okay, hey, uh, Karen from accounting, you want to you want to take this on?" Uh, and she said, "Okay, I've um, you know, I've never really tried Mexican food, but uh, yeah, sure, I'll try it on." And they try it. It doesn't work. No surprise, and it goes bust. Welcome to the Future Tribe podcast, where we're all about taking your future to the next level. Whether it is interviewing guests or unpacking strategies, you know we will be talking about getting things done and backing you, a fellow optimistic go-getter. And now, as always, here is your host, the formidable, fortunate, and highly favored, Jermaine Muller. Hello, Future Tribe. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. On this week's episode, I've got Carlos from Crediverso. Crediverso, sorry. Um, how are you today, Carlos? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for asking. Really excited to talk to you. Yeah, I mean, let's get the ball rolling. What is Crediverso to start off with? Absolutely. So we are an online financial products marketplace designed for U.S. Hispanics. It's a huge population here in the States. It's 60 million, uh, 60 million people, which is about 20% of our population. Yeah, wow. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a big portion of the population. And the amazing thing is that they are very much underserved by existing financial institutions and uh, financial intermediary platforms like, um, you know, the companies that give you personal finance information, resources. First of all, many, much of it is not available in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't advertise in Hispanic neighborhoods and the content is not designed or presented in a way that is accessible to the typical Hispanic consumer. So what we try to do is provide easy to access bilingual tools that help consumers understand complex financial decisions like how to pick the right credit card or how to apply for a mortgage. We also offer a ton of educational resources like a step-by-step guide on how to get a free credit report or in the uh, particular economic circumstances that we find ourselves in right now, how to make sure you get your stimulus check or a government loan, things like that. Okay. So is there, is there such a need? I mean, so 20% of the population you said is Hispanic. Um, are they, is there, is there a need then that they um, get that information in Spanish or in, 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 that, in a different language? Or um, where is, why is that need sort of there? Um, I, I guess what I'm trying to identify is, you know, are there then, if that's 20% of the population, are there then other groups as well in, in the US where they would be better served if they were delivered that information in their own native language? Absolutely. And, you know, we're starting with Hispanics. That's the consumer base that we know uh, best, but you're, you're absolutely right. The, uh, one of the great things about being in the United States and about what I love about living in Los Angeles is that you can stand on a street corner in LA and see street signs and storefronts in six different languages, mm-hmm. English, Spanish, Mandarin, Korean, Tagalog, all sorts of languages. And so while we're starting with, uh, with the Hispanic audience in the United States, um, ideally, I think there is a need for, um, for a service like ours for many different communities. And the way that I approach how that need plays out for the Hispanic population is you can look at um, the media landscape, for example. And in the US, you know, it, it uh, certainly is different where you are, I imagine, but in the US we have something like, I don't know, 400, 500 channels that are offered in English, mm-hmm. and we have two that are offered in Spanish. Uh, and so the need is just absolutely not met in many of these different verticals. Finance is a really important one for you know many many different reasons. Uh, access to small business loans, access to 
student loans, and anything as simple as getting a credit check or getting a credit card. And so while the, not the entirety of the 60 million uh, person population speaks solely Spanish, we go beyond just a, uh, you know, we're not just a translation service. There really is a cultural relevance component to this in terms of mm -hmm. the type of present, the way it's presented. You can take a credit card, for example, and a typical general market site might focus on, okay, what's a, what's the best credit card if you want to build up some travel points to go to Europe next summer? And that's great. You know, it's uh, plenty of folks are taking those kind of trips. Maybe, maybe not right now, but uh, hopefully soon <laughs> in the future. Yeah. But with our specific demographic that we're um, offering the service towards, many of them maybe have, you know, never been on a plane, more interested in things like what is a good credit card if I don't have a social security number? What is a good credit card uh -huh. if I just Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so you can sort of you're looking past it's 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 the language is sort of the easiest way to identify who your market is, but then that has implications that sort of spread much further into the community, into how they live their life, and even you know as you've touched on sort of what their normal is versus you know what the average American's normal is as well. So you're you're really just um, I mean, money at the end of the day is a very lifestyle thing. So that's what you're trying to do is sort of talk about that from a lifestyle style sort of perspective. Um, we didn't talk about what your role is and, um, you know, um, what you do at Crediverso. Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, so I founded Crediverso about at this point, just over nine months ago. So we are a very young company, but we are growing very quickly. I think uh, we are getting close to 20 people or so on the team across all the different capacities. Uh, we just brought on a summer internship team of about seven people, all MBA students, all fantastic, everywhere from engineers to finance backgrounds. So we're growing very quickly. We're expanding into different product verticals. But uh, yeah, you know, I started this company in late October of last mm -hmm. year. And really the idea behind it was that uh, I just started noticing that, hey, why am I not seeing advertisements uh, in Spanish with uh, Hispanic imagery or uh, you know, things that are relevant to the Hispanic community on TV, on social media, on Instagram, Facebook? Why is that not there? And after a little bit of research, I realized, hey, it looks like the typical financial institution spends less than two and a half percent of their marketing budget on marketing towards Hispanics. And as I mentioned a minute ago, 20% of the population is comprised of that group. So there's a big mismatch there, which, you know, it's bittersweet because on one hand, it means that there is a, for a long time, there has been a population that has been very much mm -hmm. underserved. On the other hand, it presents a business opportunity. And so that's, uh, we're kind of approaching from both. Those yeah, areas. right. Very interesting. So um, you started this about nine, 10 months ago. Um, how old are you now, if you don't mind me asking? You're 31, 31. So you were probably 30, 31 when you started as well. What drove you to start this apart from, you know, seeing this market, um, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of things in, in life that people come across that, you know, oh, there's, there's a good business opportunity here, but it takes a bit more than, you know, a good business opportunity to jump into a business. Um, what, what, what were the other factors that sort of um, came into it? You know, um, were you sort of leaving another job or were you finishing up at a, another business that you started? How, how did that sort of um, happen perfectly? Yeah, thanks for asking, Jermaine. And it did, really, the way that kind of played out is that uh, I, not too long ago, graduated from grad school, and I did a joint degree program uh, at Harvard in law and business. So I graduated with my JD and my MBA. Um, and that, you know, I, I was lucky enough to, to get to have that great education. And 
learn a, across a variety of subjects, you know, from law all the way to finance, how to start a business, how to incorporate a business, all those things that really it's kind of an essential skill set for uh, a, a founder. And so I figured, okay, you know, now I, I'm young, I'm not married, no kids. Uh, now is probably the best time, if there is one, to take this big risk because mm-hmm. it is a big risk. It's, you know, many of my colleagues went on to uh, very secure jobs in investment banking or consulting or private equity. And that's a, that's a very hard route because of the hours that they make you work and the, the lifestyle, but uh, it, you don't have that same job insecurity. You know, you don't know whether your company will still be around uh, in, in a year. Um, so I figured if there's any time in my life where I'm going to take a big risk, it's right now where I don't have people depending on me. And uh, it's, I think it's a social mission that I really care about. And so that mm-hmm. makes it all the to swallow. And, and how do you make the financial side of things sort of work? Like um, not, not in terms of the actual product service, but the, the business side of things So coming out of school. Um, I would imagine, you know, 20 people cost money to obviously to, to pay their wages, things like that. How's that sort of, how have you managed to navigate that side of things? And while that is a, a tough path to choose uh, for a variety of reasons, most of which he kind of just outlined on the cost side, it puts you in a position where you uh, have a, an actual product that people can look at, walk through, get a really good understanding for the business and the revenue model before you begin asking for venture dollars. And you have a little bit more leverage that way and just better economics in terms of the, in terms of the terms that you get from venture capital partners. Now, to answer your question, that makes for a tougher stretch from inception to funding, mm-hmm. right? And I was uh, lucky enough to have had a few jobs before uh, before and during grad school, um, and I was able to put away some money. I knew that I ultimately wanted to start something on my own. So between putting away that money during grad school, uh, investing it where I could, um, the fact that up until uh, a couple months ago, we were in a long bull market, um, all those things kind of helped to put me in the position to be able to fund this thing internally for a little while until we got the MVP up and running, which we have now. And now we are aggressively in the VC funding uh, strategy phase of our resistance. Okay. Wow. So you're, you're very intentionally now looking for outside money to come in and, um, and use that, those, that funding to, um, I guess, take the business into the next stage. That's right. And I'm really excited about it because it means that, you know, where we have been very intentional about approaching some of these costs and some of these big um, expenditure items uh, previously, now we are kind of starting to get to the point where we can think about, okay, what does this thing look like when we really juice it up with some financing? Mm-hmm. And that, that is everything from uh, bringing more engineers in-house to accelerate our growth on the product development side to uh, really taking a heavy crack at paid ads. Uh, and, you know, we have a, a few strategies within that, but Additional money never hurts, Jermaine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's an interesting thing that I think um, I I think about all the time um, because you know when you when you get additional money, um, you'd be looking to give a give away a portion of the business. Is that is that correct in in this instance in terms of what you're looking at? Unfortunately, I think they uh, generally will make me. I mean, if if anybody wants to give me free money, that's even better. But <laughs> but, but you're you're looking at you know giving away sh- shares of the business versus like debt or venture debt and and, and that, those sorts of options. We're, we're considering both. Uh, we have a uh, a team comprised of a few very smart people. Um, some we have a lawyer with experience on the VC side. Uh, some folks that with finance backgrounds like my own. And that's one of the major decision points we're trying to make. So through this process, as we look at the 
the really the real decision points of the fundraising strategy, it's okay. Um, what do we want to spend the money on? How much will it cost? Uh, what is the best way to pursue that money? And based off of all those factors, who are we targeting from an investment investing standpoint? Is it, uh, are we looking at a seed? Are we looking at a series A? Are we looking at traditional venture? Are we looking at angel or family office or strategic partners? These are all decisions that we're actively making right now. And it makes for a pretty interesting process. Um, but the, the end goal again is, you know, if we can, like I said, juice this company up with the uh, resources that it needs to really have a, a wide reach, uh, I'm really excited about the potential impact that it can have. I think if we can be the difference between somebody getting a small business loan and being able to open up a business or getting a student loan and being able to go to college, uh, that is really what this company is all about. And the existing financial resources, personal finance resources that are out there in the US right now are, uh, I think, lacking in many of those areas for our demographic. Yeah, yeah. So there's a strong sort of social mission here. Um, but then looking at, you know, asking people for money, did you want to get to a stage where um, the way I like to think about it is that you want to come up with a very clear or good formula of what it takes for you, for your company to grow? Um, things like, you know, how much money do we have to spend to acquire per customer, you know, customer acquisition costs, Um did you did you spend a lot of time doing that before you started this process or are you still sort of are you trying to define that as much as possible before you start to look for money is that is that a um very intentional thing that you're doing here absolutely and i, I can tell you know two seconds in that this is a process that you are very familiar with the um the benefit i have uh is that my sister is a principal at a venture capital firm and so i kind of have uh, a it's a, a secret weapon in her as intentional about this approach as uh, on my own, she is able to really guide me in that sense. Uh, and so, you know, again, in terms of that um, strategizing upfront, when we approach the process, like you said, you know, we are, um, we are really selling a product here. Now, I'm not talking about the uh, credit verse of the website to the consumers, but I'm talking about the investment opportunity to venture capital investors. Mm-hmm. And, whenever you're selling something, you need to understand uh, exactly the perspective somebody has who is a potential buyer. And the relevance there is what are these KPIs that a typical VC investor will look at? Um, You mentioned customer acquisition costs. Our revenue model, that is perhaps one of the most uh, relevant metrics that an investor will look at. But there are other ones as well. I mean, burn rates, uh, what what our major milestones for spending are in the next few months, in the next year. Um, these are all very relevant pieces that need to be able to be answered before we can have uh, serious conversations with, within the VC community. And we've, I think, done a pretty good job so far of trying to come to those answers. Uh, but, you know, it's a, it's a startup. Things change. We're rolling out new products as we speak. Uh, so what our, what our burn rate looks like, what our revenue structure looks like is different for every product. So uh, it's, it's been a fun process to answer the question. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting sort of um, time for us to talk with you because you're sort of nine months in, I would call that a very young business, but then you're getting to, you're starting to look for funding and you're in a position where I would say, again, businesses would find themselves more at, you know, 24 months rather than nine, 10 months in. Um, I mean, granted, this is this is not a short process. It's not like, you know, you're going to wake up tomorrow and you're going to have a deal and um, by next week, you're going to have all the funding through. But um, just looking at it, it's, it's interesting to have a conversation with someone who is going through this, um, going through this journey. And 
you know, looking at it, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're really looking at this as an opportunity um, to get money to um, make an end sort of social goal a reality versus, um, you know, selling a bit of the company um, to to keep the company alive per se. It's you're, 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 you're looking at the social side of things and what that, what that power, the power that you have um, in that, that sort of sense. Is, is that fair to say? Well, you know, I think the, the the good thing about the position we're in right now and the way we've built out the different teams is that our burn rate is actually very, very low. So uh, we are under no um, immediate time pressure in terms of uh, how much we need to raise. But in terms of the end goal of why we're trying to do this, I think uh, I think there are two major goals. I mean, there is absolutely that social mission uh, and that potential for generational change that I think we have within this community. I think is very much needed. And we with through the power of the internet and uh, the opportunity that uh, has been created through other firms or large financial institutions not being able to access or not simply caring enough to address this market, there is a big opportunity there to have a social mission. Uh, the flip side of that coin is that this is a space that uh, is phenomenally, uh, it, it makes phenomenal sense from a business case uh, because there are all these different products. I mean, credit cards, personal loans, student loans, uh, credit checks. These are, in many cases, especially through doing it uh, in, on a mobile or on an internet uh, platform, um, very high margin products. I think the beauty of the model that, we've, uh, that we're pursuing is we will never charge a penny to the end consumer, to the Hispanic consumer in the U.S., our revenue model is entirely tied to the financial institutions with whom we partner on the back end, essentially. So once, once something goes through, you get like a reimbursement, a commission, whatever terminology you want to use um, for sending that person to that institution. Exactly. So, and you know, the, the uh, specifics there are somewhat different depending on the product vertical we're talking about, but that's the gist of it. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and again, that those commissions are provided by the, uh, financial partner and uh, not by the end consumer. So how are you finding your clients? Is it, uh, or your customers, is it a lot of word of mouth at this stage or are you doing, you, you mentioned sort of, you know, um, increasing spend in, in advertising, but um, is that something that you've pursued? Um, how, how have you sort of um, started to find these cu- clients and customers? And could you give us an idea of how many, um, customers you would say you have just, just a, just a general ballpark. Sure. So the, um, the approach we're taking, I would say is two pronged. Uh, first is on the organic side. And, um, this is really interesting because, um, you know, I, I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that the, uh, our competitors, as I described them, um, are both the financial institutions who are direct providers of financial products, loans, credit card issues, et cetera, um, and the financial intermediary platforms. So those are things like, at least in the States, LendingTree, Credit Karma, NerdWallet. And not one of those platforms is available in Spanish. Uh, mm-hmm. So what that means on the organic customer acquisition side is that when we write an article about uh, five things you should do if you miss a credit card payment, and that's in Spanish, we are the only place you can get that information. So as you can imagine, that does phenomenal things for your SEO. Because so, you can rank almost number one straight off the bat. Exactly. And so every, you know, the, the competitive landscape is different for every one of these products, but in many of them, we are the only place, for example, where you can compare credit cards in Spanish in the country. We're yeah, the only wow. get a credit check in Spanish in the country. So, so, so have there been, um, sorry to cut you off, but have, have there been 
competitors, so to speak, in the past? Like, I mean, to me, I'm looking at it and, and I guess this is the hallmark of any business that um, has identified a really good opportunity is that, you know, once once you sort of hear about the idea, you sort of go, why hasn't someone done this before? But has someone done this before? Okay, so that is a question that I spend a lot of time thinking about. And, and I, I know the answer as to whether they've done it before. Um, and the, the question is why, what happened, right? And yeah, like, did they go bust or did they... Did, did they get bought out? Like what happened? So there hasn't been anybody in our particular space to try to do what we're doing in terms of a platform that goes across multiple financial product verticals, uh, comparisons, customer acquisition, et cetera, uh, in Spanish targeting this, this platform. But um, the l- let me give you an analogy um, that I think will kind of I- I- encompass what has happened in this space. So um, when a what I call a general market company. Um, so somebody who targets the general market as a whole and doesn't uh, specify niches with regards to demo- specific demographics. When a general market company wants to go from targeting the general market as a whole to one specific demographic, the way that they have done it on in almost every instance is take the existing infrastructure for that they use to build out their, in many cases, very successful general market platform and try to apply that to the, a new specific demographic. So. Uh, for example, you can get a um, a bank that is headquartered in the middle of the country, uh, has a in a state where their population of Hispanics is almost zero percent, um, and they say, "Hey, you know, they're looking at the same numbers we are. We got sixty million people here. We're not addressing them. We're not available in Spanish. Let's do this. Let's go after this market." And they say, "Okay, hey, uh, Karen from accounting, you want to you want to take this on?" Uh, and she said, "Okay, I've." Um, I've never really tried Mexican food, but uh, yeah, sure, I'll try it on. And they try it. It doesn't work, no surprise, and it goes bust. And the most recent example of this is a company called Mundo Fox, okay, which Fox tried to develop a uh, competitive television station in Spanish called Mundo Fox. It started, I think, in 2014, and by 2016, if I'm not mistaken, it was bust. Uh, And I think the uh, approach of trying to transplant a, a general market infrastructure into a new market, much like if you were to try to go into a different country, does not work. Whereas if you build ground up with people who are familiar with that market, familiar with the audience, and know how to speak the language in more ways than one, uh, I think that's the appropriate way to, to target that market. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So so what, what you've been able to do is essentially, it's almost the benefit of not having a product that already sort of does a similar thing is that you can build it up and you can customize it so that the customer um, is really in love with it in all, in all aspects of it. And it sort of is really fit for purpose versus just getting something and then trying to make it all trying to make it work, which is, as you've mentioned, um, the competitors have tried to do in the past. That's the goal. And, you know, it's funny, for example, um, this, this is all stuff that I, I love seeing the examples of, but again, it's bittersweet because it just means that this is an unaddressed market. Uh, and so there are, um, there are lists that come out every year of who the top advertising spenders are within the Hispanic population in the U.S. And on that list, there is only one financial institution, okay, that uh, does lending, credit card, et cetera. Um, and that's Wells Fargo. Um, great company, do a lot of great things. Um, but if you go, to, so presumably because they're the only one that's in the top 50 by spend, they're the best, right? They should be the best. Mm. If you go mm. to wellsfargo.com slash Espanol, that's the Spanish landing page. The uh, text is, I think, all in English. Uh, the photos are of imagery that I would not exactly describe as relevant for this demographic. And there are, um, there is a pun 
in, in English. So if you don't speak the language, not only are you going to not understand what, that, what the words themselves mean, but you're definitely not going to understand what the play on words means. Yeah, so this is a really interesting, um, for you, a really interesting exercise in, in niching down um, and then um, almost localizing it isn't it like you're you're in the u.s but you want to localize it to the hispanics now that does sort of bring up an interesting thing though um is it fair to say that i mean the hispanics can come from everywhere but is is the majority are the majority of the spanish population in the u.s from a certain country or um descendants of a certain sort of group of people well, that's another really important nuance, and uh, mm. I'm glad you raised it because uh, it's a huge population in the country. And to just say Spanish speakers is almost like looking at the world and saying English speakers and assuming they're all from the <laughs> yeah. right? Doesn't work that way. Phenomenally different cultures, mm-hmm. just they share a common language. And so, what you've brought up is a very uh, important nuance in the sense that. I think something like 65% or so, maybe 70% come from Mexico. So that's a big chunk. And the remainder is kind of spread across Latin America, the Caribbean. Uh, we even have some Spaniards uh, mm-hmm. in the U.S., as you can imagine. Um, so but very different countries, very different cultures. Uh, they do share the commonality of the language. Um, but the w- one thing that I've seen, for example, is that um, the, the way that um, – immigration has played out over the past 50 years, 100 years or so in the country is that uh, the Cuban population, for example, um, when that immigration process started, and you know, this is, I'll, I'll get a bit didactic, at the risk of being a bit didactic here, I'll offer, <laughs> because that was a, they were political immigrants, political based immigrants, for the most part, I'm speaking in, in broad terms here. Um, when they came to the country, and it prominently was to Florida, uh, the people who were able to come were of high education levels, generally uh, wealthy, high socioeconomic status. Um, mm-hmm. So that created a community in Florida that was very different from uh, some other cultures that were uh, maybe not political immigrants, but uh, rather economic immigrants. And so when you leave a country, uh, and Mexico has, has been a, a perfect example of this in many instances, when you leave a country because there is no economic opportunity for you there, then you are not someone who typically has, uh, it, it, by definition, it means that you don't have socioeconomic opportunities. So when you get to this country, you're not come, arriving here with a medical degree behind you or a law degree behind you. You're arriving here to look for whatever work you can, often with uh, mm-hmm. money in your pockets. And, you know, I have relatives that were in that situation. Um, and so it's one with which I'm really familiar. Um, but the way that plays out is that when you look to what, uh, you asked how, how companies have traditionally approached this. When you look to how a company in um, you know, whatever part of the country approaches this, say, okay, hey, let's, we want to get into the Hispanic market. Let's go hire a Hispanic-owned marketing firm. Great, where are they? Oh, they're Miami. Okay, um, they're, uh, that is a firm that is very well-suited for targeting their specific demographic of Florida and the immigrants that have arrived in Florida and that community has developed there. But that may not be the one that captures the largest percentage of the population in the country. So you may end up coming up with a message that is perfect for one portion of that pie, but missing a mm-hmm. larger portion of that pie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so what's your heritage? What's your background? So I grew up in a Mexican American family in Los Angeles. Uh, my mother was born in Mexico, uh, moved to the United States to go to college. My uh, father was born in uh, a uh, Mexican neighborhood in Los Angeles, East LA. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So you've got sort of that Mexican heritage. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I also actually have yeah. Irish in me. Uh, but unless you see the baby pictures of me where I had orange hair. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I guess what, the, the reason I'm asking this is because, you know, you, you've just talked about how, how hard it can be and how important it is that you have, you know, quite, um, quite firsthand knowledge and firsthand experience when you're, when you're targeting your demographic. Um, but how do you then make sure that, you do that because I can imagine that, you know, like, do you literally just sit down and look at all marketing collateral, look at the website and make sure that it, it sort of matches who you're going after. Do you have different people you, you um, invite into this mix? Do you talk to a marketing agency, get them involved? How have you managed to do that? Because I mean, you've got the distinct benefit here of actually having heritage uh, or, or, or the, the background and the upbringing that could, um, that is related to your niche. Um, but I could imagine that if you didn't have any of that, that this would be near impossible. But um, how do you make it happen? Well, listen, it is, it is very, very hard, even for me, having the benefit of uh, growing up in a neighborhood that is uh, very Hispanic. And, um, you know, I, I think... Uh, I, I just had tacos for lunch. Uh, so that's uh, <laughs> even having had that um, exposure to the culture, it was still a very hard thing to do to build a product that somebody wants to use and they feel is right for them. We've had the benefit of having a uh, woman on the team who uh, was the founder of multicultural marketing at Google. So has a phenomenal background in this space. Um, but really I think the, the first step as we've approached develop the product development in every one of these verticals, whether it was our credit card comparison platform, whether it's uh, the uh, credit checks or loan products that we're working on, um, the first step in every instance is understanding the consumer, understanding the pain points, understanding what they like and don't like about the existing offerings, if they even know about the existing offerings. I mentioned that there is very little marketing for these products in those neighborhoods. Uh, so sitting down and actually having surveys, interviews, questionnaires, talking to people, getting their stories. That is the most important thing we can do. And then building from that standpoint, that actually has been a much harder process now, given the pandemic era of not being able to have uh, as easy yeah. interactions, but we're making it work and we're still, I mean, we have people left there doing surveys today. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's very um, hit the ground running, you know, talk to the people, um, talk to the the demographic and just put in the work that it's going to take to understand what they're after and what they want. Mm -hmm. But I'll, I'll give you an example yeah. um, for as to why this is so hard. So, um, you know, I, I know you, you speak a bunch of languages. Um, well, I don't know if Spanish is one of them, but uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> in Spanish, you can refer to someone using either the informal tu, okay, which is you, or the formal usted, which is a, you know, generally reserved for parents, things like that. Um, if I'm talking mm -hmm. to one of my buddies, I say tu. If I'm talking to uh, a professor, I say usted. Now, which one of those do we use when we're writing these articles, right? That's mm -hmm. like, you think that's a simple question, but is it, uh, are the people reading this? Are they uh, younger? Are they uh, younger than me? Are they my age? Are they older? Are they first generation parents? Are they second generation children? Those are all, that's a very nuanced question. And to my point earlier about what happens when you uh, put Karen from accounting on this project, who's uh, never been to Southern California, you know, that two versus who said thing, I, I have trouble figuring out the answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. 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 L let alone someone who, you know, hasn't even had, had uh, Hispanic food and, um, and any sort of Hispanic um, contact before, so, so to speak. Um, 
what are some, like we've talked about, you know, the, 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 the things that you've been able to do. Um, what are some things that you've, um, some mistakes that you've made, some things that you've sort of gone, you know, oh, we could have, we could have been, you know, a month or two ahead um, if, if we'd avoided this mistake. Um, anything come to mind? Yeah, uh, honestly, the, um, it's, it's not a question of uh, what comes to mind. It's a question of which item from the list to tell you. <laughs> 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 oh that's fantastic because normally people just sort of say oh you know i can't really think of any um yeah you know it just took took a long time but i can't think of any mistakes but you know um what are some big ones that do you think the um the audience can really um learn from and understand from yeah absolutely so um i think probably the the, the most interesting one is that um, I mentioned that we have a lot of different product verticals that we're in. Um, the ones that I think are the most interesting, both from the business case uh, and from the potential to have like real dollar impact, putting dollars in, back in people's pockets, um, are some that we're working on right now that are going to be launched over the next, um, hopefully, few weeks. But uh, at, a, at a, well, I, I, if I if I give you a deadline, then my product team is going to yell at me. So, <laughs> a deadline, um, but. And I said, okay, in order for us to get there, we need involvement from these partner financial institutions. We need buy-in. We need to be able to show them that we are legitimate, we are active, that their competitors, if they're not already on board with us, they will be on soon and we can capture those network effects. And I said, okay, that to get there, that's going to be hard. Uh, we need to build up some groundwork first. And uh, what you can see on our website right now, while they are, I certainly think they're viable business lines on their own, I think uh, they are... Um, in many ways, steps we took in order to position ourselves to be able to chase down that, that, that really big fish. Um, now, I mentioned that I wasn't an engineer by background, and that's where this gets important. That's where that gets relevant. Uh, the process that I understood to be very much a business development process in order to access the information and the software that we need to create those products that I was mentioning. I thought that was going to be really hard, really time intensive, very much a business development thing based on relationships and demonstrating value. It's really easy. It's just a software thing. They ended up joining the team later and they said, Hey, well, why have you been waiting to do this? Said, oh, well, this reason, this reason <laughs> that, you know, you can just go here and you'll get it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, in terms of, distilling that into an actionable mistake and how to fix it. I think uh, trying to put people around you that round out your skill set and know things that you don't know. And more importantly, that can identify, you know, I'm always trying to figure out uh, what questions can I ask that I don't even know to ask yet. And so having those mm -hmm. people around that can solve for that is really, really important. And because this was a very lean team at the start and we were self-funding, I tried to solve for a lot of that on my own at the risk of uh, not getting questions answered in the first place that could have saved me a lot of time and resources. Well, and to an extent, what, what you sort of, I think a takeaway from that as well is that um, it's okay to ask questions and it's okay to sort of put it out there um, because you know, there are instances where you just know that, that this is the answer. This is it. Like there's no, there's no alternative, but then um, just as, just as much, there are instances where you sort of go, I'm, I'm not sure, or I, I don't, I don't know what I don't know. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure about over there, but over here, um, I see a lot of that the, there's Facebook groups that are basically like, there's one called ask Canberra, for example, that is literally designed and meant 
to for people to come in and ask questions. Um, and what I've found is that people ask questions in there and I sort of look at the question and I go, like, that's not even a question. Like, that, that's, it's obvious, you know, or like, what's, um, what are your favorite Chinese restaurants in Canberra? Now, I'm just going, like, everyone knows what the best ones are. Yet then I click in through the comments and I go, hold on, I didn't know that, you know, that, 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 that place is like right around the corner. I didn't know that they even existed. Um, and, you know, that's just, me, I guess, my example of when, you know, you ask those questions, you get answers, even though you think that you know the answer. Um, and I mean, your example was a similar thing. Yes, you didn't have the team in place at that time. And if you had the team, one would hope that you would have sort of um, got that answer much quicker. But it's just saying that, you know, put your hand up, ask that question. Um, and there's so many online forums and opportunities nowadays where you can just put it out there sort of um, over the years, I've used, you know, those sorts of platforms just to ask all sorts of questions that help me understand, you know, um, how much is someone willing to pay per hour for X, Y, and Z service, you know, is, is um, there a demand for this? And why, why is there a demand? Why is there no demand? Um, and so on and so forth. So um, there's, there's a lot, a lot of sort of, uh, I think your, your example was um, very product led or product based, but that, that sort of can apply for all sorts of facets of um, someone's business and someone's journey. So um, yeah, that's awesome. Um, what do you guys sort of plan to do moving forward? What's, what's sort of the next step? Are you, is this a game or is this a play where you need to get as many uh, providers on board? Um, is this a play like, cause it's sort of a, almost a chicken or the egg situation as well, isn't it? Like, do you get, you know, do you get complete coverage of all Hispanics, um, but then not have complete coverage of all uh, financial products or the opposite or both together? What's, what's the plan there? No, you just highlighted something that has been, um, very much a, a an idea that it has uh, you know not kept me up at night, but uh, one that I that I struggle with trying to solve for, and that's the I think it's the reason why people don't pursue this type of business often is because it's a two sided marketplace, and building a two sided marketplace is very very hard. You have to align the supply and align the demand at the same time, and like you said, it is a chicken and the egg problem. So, you know, for uh, w- with regards to our specific two-sided marketplace. On the one hand, we have all these consumers that they will only want to be on our platform if they can see relevant offers for loans, for credit cards, for credit checks, et cetera. On the other hand, on the supply side, uh, these financial institutions, they're not going to want to put their products on their platform unless there is traffic, right? Unless there are mm-hmm. consumers, unless there is demand. So, okay, how do you how do you get both there at the same time when neither one wants to be there if the other one is there yet? And that's, that's an interesting challenge. Um, the way that we've approached it is basically we um, built out the supply. Um, I don't want to say uh, artificially because it is, real, um, it is real supply. It is just not in the ultimate uh, iteration that we want it to be in from a technological standpoint or from a monetized standpoint. So we brought in a bunch of personal finance experts. Uh, and and I, I am certainly not a personal finance expert yet. I'm working on becoming one. Um, we brought in people who write for Forbes, write for CNBC, write for every major financial editorial that you can think of. And we said, hey, help us build out this platform with content that is relevant, uh, interesting, and showcases the right products for this demographic. Um, that, by the way, on its own was a very difficult process because as you can imagine, finding somebody who has a knowledge of the specific demographic 
of uh, financial products. Yes, you can find them. They're probably going to be in Mexico. And those financial yeah. are the same ones that we want to showcase in the U.S. So it was very much, you know, finding the right people, uh, uh, refining it in the way that is relevant. Um, and so we stocked our platform with all this content about what are the best credit cards, what are the best laws. And while we didn't have that done in the technologically sophisticated way that we are uh, bringing it to now, and in many cases, those products weren't uh, monetized yet, that at least created mm. supply such that the demand can now have something to look at and have something to demand for. Um, so that's how now, okay, now we're in the position where we have that demand and we can go back and pluck out something that isn't exactly what we want, pop it back into something that is monetized, that is technologically sophisticated, et cetera. And that's how we kind of approach that chicken and the egg problem. Yeah. So instead of being uh, frozen with almost indecision of, you know, what do I go with chicken or the egg? You just picked one and just, just ran with it. Um, and then just knew that, okay, it might not be perfect. It might not be the exact demographic. It might not be generating the exact results, but um, that you can then leverage. It's almost like, you know, the first step, right? You sort of get that step going. And then you know that because you've got that first step, you can then go to the next step, but you can't sort of jump over that step. Um, and it, I guess the takeaway here is just to, Pick one, maybe pick one side of the market and just try and try and go after them. Um, and at the end of the day, you can't get the exact exact market that you want because to do that, you'll need that sort of supply and demand um, two-sided marketplace, but try and get at least a general gist of, and in this case, it's people who are interested in money, um, who have a Hispanic background or who speak Spanish. Um, and then you can go from there. And yes, it's not making you all the money, but um, next step is to sort of go to the banks and say, Hey guys, we've got, you know, X amount of traffic on our website. Um, they need so solutions. We're looking to monetize. Let's start working together. Is that, is that basically what you did? Yeah, th that's, that's absolutely it. Uh, and you know, I, I wish, uh, I wish I'd, I'd had you around early on to help me work through these. <laughs> so quick. Uh, you could have done this many, many times. The, um, you know, what you were mentioning a moment ago, I think, um, it really, really struck uh, home to me because all the other jobs I've had, um, and you know, like I mentioned, I've worked in law firms, I've worked on the banking side. Um, I have been surrounded by these fantastic, intelligent people who are good at what they do and they're hardworking and they challenge you and they uh, they provide a sounding board for complex questions that you're trying to figure out. So you're just like you are right now. And uh, when you take that leap to go into a startup, I mean, if you don't have a co-founder, as I did not, uh, and you don't have a team right at, from the outset, as I did not, now we do, and now it's in a much better spot, but um, you all of a sudden don't have anybody to ask questions to. <laughs> Those answers yourself, and it's a very different process. So, you know, I was lucky enough to have, uh, like I mentioned, my sister, uh, my parents have been involved with the Hispanic community for a long, long time, so they were great sounding boards, and a variety of other, I'd call them advisory board uh, role type people. Um, but still, that's a that's very different from having somebody sitting right next to you saying, "Hey, what do you think about this?" Oh, okay, great, move on. Yes, yes, on a, on a day to day basis, who's there to you know? The way I see it, a co-founder is fantastic because at the very least, it's just another sanity, another level of sanity check. Um, you know, either either they agree with you and that's awesome, or they disagree, and then you've got to you've got to sort of work it out and prove it out and. Um, that's what I try and do as much as possible is sort of, and, and, and you know, be, being sort of the seen as a leader, the CEO, the founder. Um, I think some people get the wrong idea within a team that whatever they, whatever this founder or the leader says is how it has to happen. Um, where 
it's much more beneficial for for someone in that position as a, as a leader or a founder um, or a manager to put an idea out there and actually get get actual feedback because um, I'm sure as you found out with your team, it's not just about shutting down the bad ideas, but also getting energy and buy-in on the right ones and the, and the right ideas and then, you know, getting that excitement and passion so that um, you can push that across to other individuals so that you're not the only guy who's there, you know, all excited and then you've got 19 team members are going far out, you know, we're just doing this because he wanted us to. You want it to be much more sort of passion driven. Now, do you guys all work in an office or remotely? How How's that happening? So typically the office is located uh, in Santa Monica. Great place to be, really easy to recruit. We can say, hey, yeah, the office is in Santa Monica. Why don't you come on down? <laughs> we'll uh, take our breaks at the beach. Um, that is uh, no longer a reality with the pandemic era. Um, so we have been entirely remote. Um, but even you know, prior to uh, when that started, we have there roles uh, across the team that don't need to be in person. So uh, we have team members who previous to all this were located in New York, some were located in Los Angeles. I traditionally spent half my time in LA and half my time in New York. Uh, and most of that could be done prior remotely. It is now all being done prior. Um, I would love to get people back into the office just because of what I was talking about with that um, communal feel and bouncing ideas mm. from each other and ideas that you didn't expect. Um, we'll see when that's a, a reality uh, and whether people are excited or interested to be back in the office. But for the moment, we're all remote. Yeah, but I mean, especially when it's sort of, uh, you know, there's a social mission as well. I, I personally believe that there's a there's a um, benefit to having people there. And, you know, it's just that energy that to bounce ideas off, to build out the community, build out the team sort of internally so that, um yeah, I mean, as you can tell, I'm a huge fan of sort of working in an office and um, we've now transitioned back to coming into the office. Things are not as bad over here as um, they're over there, um, for, for better or worse. Um, and, you know, Canberra, really, at the end of the day, I think we had about 100 cases of, of coronavirus, which is... Um, insane compared to what you what the numbers that you guys are getting and, and seeing over there so um we've transitioned back um and you know i just think there's a huge value i i personally don't think that remote work is where where the workforce is going to um at least not the workforce that's driven uh, with a mission you know yeah the people who just go to work to earn you know money um they don't care where they work out of but I think that, you know, um, we, we at Future Theory, so Future Theory is my business, um, we do marketing, websites, all that stuff. We have a social mission. We, we want to help as many people as possible, help as many business owners as possible. Um, and that's just much easier to infuse when you're there in person. And, and that's the same thing for you guys. It's much easier to, you know, push that across saying, listen, we're not just a financial services provider or a financial comparison site. We're, we're, we are, you know, the number one place for Hispanics and we're everything Hispanic. Um, and that needs to sort of go and permeate through the whole team. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, the um, you asked a moment ago uh, about one of the um, major mistakes I made. And I have another one for you, if you'll uh, humor. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I, I keep mentioning that I wasn't from an engineering background. And so for our first product, I guess the credit card comparison, which was the first thing we did. It was you know, very basic and we're, still, uh, we're actively working on bringing the technological sophistication of that up. Um, I basically was the product manager on that. 
I don't have a background mm -hmm. in product management. And so um, the amount of learnings that have come with going through that process on my own and then having people who have really strong engineering product development backgrounds coming on board and telling me what I did wrong, it's interesting. So one of the pieces that uh, to, to what you're saying about being in person and having, you know, the uh, those ideas get developed. Um, one of the things that I thought was really fascinating is that we have switched from um, a model where I said, here's uh, to the engineers, to the engineering team, um, here's what I want to do. Here's what it should look like. Here's what I want it to do. Uh, go build it. Let me know when it's done and we'll run through it. Um, to now we've switched to an agile software development uh, or product development uh, platform. So that's much easier to do in person. But in the same vein, I think the way that that ideology was presented to me is that you can on the, if you look at the way I did it uh, and say the product is not credit card comparison, but it is getting a car built. The way I did it is I said, okay, I want, I want this car. Here's what it's going to look like. Go build it. And they, the engineers start by building a wheel. Then they build an axle. Then they build the undercarriage. Then they put the body on it. Then they paint it and send it to me. And when I get it, you know, I'm not happy because it took a long time. It might not be the type of car I wanted. Maybe I wanted a convertible. They gave me a truck, etc the agile method that we're switching to, and this is just kind of one of those learnings from having been, been around these team members now, it's the process is much more, okay, you want a car? Let's start by building you a scooter. Okay, you build that scooter. Mm -hmm. Hey, I like the scooter. You know, I like, uh, I want it to go a little faster. I kind of need it for this, for this. Okay, then we turn it into a bike. That's the next phase. I have a bike. I try the bike out. There's that customer feedback there. Then they turn it into a motorcycle. All right, and we're now, it has taken a lot less time and maybe I want that motorcycle more than I ever wanted that car. And that totally mm -hmm. solves my problem. I save time, I save resources, I save frustration, and there's feedback baked in at every point. So that's one of the learners. And I think that, again, just having had the benefit of being in person with people uh, versus working in a silo, and maybe that's remote, maybe that's just as a, as a sole founder, uh, that's one of the things I think you learn from being around people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's a really good um, tip as well, because I think sometimes people find people think that they need this end goal that is, you know, let's call it the Rolls Royce, um, when in reality, they just needed a scooter. But they think and they've been led to believe that without the Rolls Royce, their business won't succeed. Um, their idea won't, you know, um, be accepted and won't be respected. When in reality, as, as you've put it, um, you can go through that journey and actually find out that I didn't need a car all along. Um, in fact, you know, the, the negatives around a car um, are much worse. And, and therefore, you know, even if the car is a better product overall, um, just I don't need all those things that take away from, and I might as well just have the core of what it is. And, you know, the same goes for even sort of coming up with a minimal viable product and just proving out, is this what you need? No, yes, okay, what what elements can we change? Um, and then going from there versus, um, because I guarantee you there's, there's services, there's, there's, um, software foundations and frameworks and bases that you can buy that build out comparison websites like guaranteed you can just buy it plop it in you know um change translate everything to spanish and you're good to go but that wouldn't serve what you're trying to do and what you, what what end product you're trying to um, arrive at yeah no, you're absolutely right and so that's the uh that's the learning curve <laughs> it's all it's all part of the fun um hey where can we find out more about you guys absolutely. and you uh, thanks for asking. So our website is crediverso.com. That's C-R-E-D-I-V-E-R-S-O.com. We're also on social, Instagram at crediverso and facebook.com slash crediverso. If you, I don't know why you would, but if you for some reason want to talk to me, my uh, <laughs> it's linkedin.com slash CP Hernandez. 
Awesome. So we'll link all that um, in the description as well so that people can find you. Now, uh, do you know about the top 12? I know about the top 12. You know about the top 12. Awesome. Okay. You ready to go? Not. <laughs> well, let's get the, get the ball rolling with top three books of podcasts that you recommend. All right. So I'll give you, uh, I'll give you my three favorite books that I think uh, your listenership might, might like to read. Uh, one is The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. It's an absolute classic. The reason I like it is because it talks about value investing, how you never want to pay something that is more than something is worth. And it sounds like a simple idea, but when you start talking about stocks and companies and other investments, it is very easy to get caught up in speculation rather than investing based on the value of something. So I think that is just a fundamental read for anybody who's interested in finance, interested in personal finance and, uh, and how to manage investments. Um, a second, what I would call investing book that I really like um, is called The Most Important Thing by Howard Marks. And the these are kind of macroeconomic uh, letters that he writes out to his investment community. So he's the chairman and uh, I think co-founder of Oak Tree Capital, which is based here in Los Angeles. They're a private equity firm. They do distressed debt investing um, amongst many other things. Um, and he sends out these letters that are phenomenal in terms of how they cover the macroeconomic landscape, the predictions he makes. And while they can be um, very, you know, professorial and theoretical. Uh, I think they're really fascinating reading. So those are two. The third book that uh, I found has really shaped my worldview, maybe not from an investing standpoint, but just in terms of, you know, being a uh, student of history and of the US. I really like a book called A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. And this presents uh, a different viewpoint of American history. And so it uh, tries to tell the story of, for example, the discovery of America from the viewpoint of the Native Americans, of the Constitution from the standpoint of, wow. of uh, the Civil War as seen by the New York Irish, of the Mexican War as seen by deserting soldiers. And so that's, it's a totally different viewpoint than what is often taught in uh, history class in middle school and seen on TV. So I thought that was a really interesting book. Yeah, that's awesome. I think I think this has been sort of the, you know, no offense to anyone, any of the guests uh, prior, but this has been a very interesting um, start to the top three because um, I've never heard of these any of these books before. So, um, and, and usually, you know, there's at least one that I sort of go, yep, heard of it, but um, love, love the diversity so far. Um, next one, top three software tools that you can't live without. Okay, well, I don't know if this will be as exciting. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That's all right. <laughs> I'll give you the uh, the boring version and then the fun version. So uh, Sounds good. The, the boring version, Excel, PowerPoint, and Google Hangouts. Okay. Those are tools that I think every startup founder needs. Excel, you know, I had the benefit of having done investment banking and they really grind into you those, those hard skills. It is not, uh, it is a very approachable um, software at the end of the day. It is not rocket science like everybody likes to make it out to be. I think people like to think that what they do is really hard. So they tell people <laughs> it actually is really easy to learn. Um, the trick is learn how to do everything on your keyboard without using a mouse. You'll save tons and tons of time down the road. Um, but for, you know, it is a financial modeling tool. I think what our platform does in the first personal finance space is all about giving people tools to understand finances. Excel is one of those tools. And when you're looking at things like valuing businesses, valuing stocks, um, as we are, uh, pitching venture capital firms, uh, Excel is something that's absolutely necessary. PowerPoint is the next step of that. Uh, and that's taking the, um, learnings that you generate through financial modeling Excel and putting them in a narrative that is 
interesting, that is compelling, that tells the story of your business or whatever it is you're trying to describe. And, uh, you know, it doesn't need to be PowerPoint, but just something that can create that presentation that tells your story. Um, I think storytelling is such an important skill. It is a soft skill. It is not one that is, that is taught as a technical thing in, uh, in high school or college, but it is so, so important being able to tell your story. Then the last piece, you know, we are in the pandemic era and Google Hangouts is a, uh, I think it is a totally free service. Um, and it has been yeah, yeah. Uh, phenomenal for our team being able to connect. I mean, as the team grows, I think the other day I was, uh, I sent out an invite to something like 15 people and I thought, what's the limit on Google Hangouts? Am I going to hit that? <laughs> I, uh, you know, no pun intended, Google it. And it's 250 <laughs> people you can get on Google Hangouts. Yeah. Wow. Which is enough for most people. You, you would say that basically enough for everyone. Yeah. So, so that's the, yeah, that's awesome. answer, uh, the fun answer software I can't live without Mario Kart, super smash brothers. <laughs> I mean, I guess that is it's software technically. So, so you get a, you get a point for that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, top three mantras you try and live by. Okay. Um, that, uh, let me, I'll start with one. Um, and you know, not to, uh, double down on the, um, video game comment, but I think I'll give you a star Wars quote here. Um, Yoda says, uh, do or do not, there is no try. Uh, and I think that is such a powerful message to live by because, it is so easy to say, oh, you know, one day I want to start a company. One day I want to uh, volunteer. One day I want to do X, Y, Z, whatever it is. Just do it, you know, get out there and do it. It's, mm-hmm. don't, don't worry about trying. Don't worry about failing. Do it or don't do it and stop talking about it. And uh, that's why I like mm-hmm. that one. Um, a uh, second quote that um, I find phenomenal is by um, one of my personal heroes, Bruce Lee. Uh, he says, to hell with circumstances, I create opportunities. Uh, and, you know, this is something that um, I think rings really true for the community that our product is intended to serve. Um, not everybody starts with the same circumstances and not everybody has access to the same resources, tools, education, financial backgrounds, et cetera. But being able to put your head down, work, do what you can with what you have and create an opportunity out of it for yourself or for others, I think is such an important message. Um, the third one is by um, someone who actually I'd be interested in to know if uh, his message has reached Australia. He is a, um, a, a hero kind of among the Hispanic community here in California, amongst migrant farm workers, and named uh, Cesar Chavez. And he uh, said, if you really want to make a friend, go to someone's house and eat with him. The people who give you their food give you their heart. And as somebody who uh, has been known to enjoy a heavy meal here or there. Uh, <laughs> I have always preached that the best way to get cultural understanding amongst people who may have nothing in common is through food. You give me a good plate mm-hmm. from some culture that I've never tried before. I eat it. We talk. That's the best way to get understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. That is, that is, again, there's a lot of diversity uh, in, in this top 12, which is good because, you know, that's what your, your product is all about as well, I think. Um, the last one. Team, yeah, sorry. I think just amongst our internship team, we have someone from South Korea, someone from Chile, someone from Colombia, someone from Mexico, someone from Taiwan, uh, someone from San Diego. It's, there are a lot of different accents being spoken in our intern program right now. That's awesome. I mean, growing up, my my friendship group we called ourselves the UN because you know we had a Serbian, Italian, Aussie, British. Um, myself, um, we had a Lebanese guy. It, it is, it, to me, it's just awesome. Um, and it's just, you know, 
um, something that should be embraced. And um, yeah, um, on to the last one, top three people you follow or study and why? Okay, so I'll, um, I'll start with the uh, quote that I gave from, from you know, Bruce Lee. So he is someone that I've always considered a personal hero. And um, the reason is that you know, we all have uh, these platforms that we work hard on developing, and whether that is um, something simple like you know, our social media presence amongst our friend group, um, something in between like a company or something major like a national following, an international following like Bruce Lee had through what he did with martial arts. Um, I think the important thing is whatever, whatever you can do to get yourself a platform and then do something good with it. That's, that's why I think Bruce Lee was really interesting. His platform was martial arts and he did a contributed a lot to that, uh, from an, an academic perspective an athletic perspective, everything. But what he, where he really had a lasting impact was on, I think the cultural understanding that took place between Americans and Chinese Americans in the U S during the time he was alive in the sixties, there was a lot of uh, racial tension uh, between uh, with the Chinese community and the American community. It was an immigrant community that uh, had previously been pretty closed off, uh, mostly with an ethnic enclaves. And there was a lot of racial tension. And by using that platform that appealed to the general markets uh, he was able to create a lot of understanding amongst that, uh, those cultures there. And I think he did a lot for the Chinese American community uh, over uh, the, the time period that he was active. Yeah. I mean, he, I, I love Bruce Lee even growing up sort of even as a kid. So yeah, that's um, I, I couldn't agree more. Anyone else that come to mind? Yeah. I'll, I'll cheat a little bit here and uh, mention my parents. Um, so their names are uh, Roland and Margarita and um, they, I, I don't think I could even begin to describe, uh, a list of heroes of mine without having them just be, uh, flat smack dab in the middle of it. Um, the, you know, uh, my mom, um, moved here from Mexico to go to college, uh, and she, uh, has done so much. Uh, she became a lawyer. She has had a successful career in business. She was a couple years ago appointed, um, as an ambassador to the UN. Uh, and so wow. I'm proud of what she does. And on top of all that, she's been a fantastic mother. Uh, and so she's always made time both for her career, for her family, for absolutely everything. So she's someone I very much look up to. Uh, my dad, you know, same thing. Um, he was born in East Los Angeles, son of a cop. Um, went to, he got himself a great education uh, and uh, ended up devoting much of his career again to his community. So he worked for a long time as the uh, chairman and CEO of Telemundo, which is one of the major uh, Spanish yeah, I've heard of them. networks here in the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. So being able to be active in your community, contribute to the community, but also challenge yourself from an intellectual and a business perspective, a professional perspective, uh, is something I very much look up to and aspire to. And so having my parents as role models, um, even you know, just within the house, is, is something I'm uh, very, I find myself very lucky and constantly grateful for. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I think I, I, there are a lot of people, um, I mean, growing up as well in Australia, um, it's it's easy to forget that the suffering that people's parents and, you know, grandparents have had to go through or the, the, the life-changing, life-altering things that they've had to do, like moving whole country, you know, just in search of opportunity usually um, or in search of something different. I mean, my parents did the same thing. We, I did, I wasn't born in Australia. We moved to Australia in sort of this pursuit of, you know, something bigger, something better, um, something more. So yeah, can totally relate to that. Um, I think that basically wraps everything up. Any, any sort of parting words? 
Um, I think, uh, no, I think that, did we do all 12 there? Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah, that was all 12 and you just breezed right through it. That was awesome. <laughs> all right, good. Uh, well, listen, man, this has been a uh, phenomenal opportunity to get to talk to you. It's, uh, it's not often that I get to have an hour-long conversation with someone on the other side of the world, let alone someone who knows this space so well, ask such interesting questions, provide such great feedback. So, you know, I hope that when this pandemic era is over, we uh, get the chance to meet in person someday, grab a drink. And um, I- that'd, that'd be fantastic. I've been meaning to, I've never been to the US, so that's um, definitely on the cards over the next few years. So um, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to let you know when I'm, when I'm going to be around and we'll, we'll grab a drink. Well, I'll tell you our offices are in Santa Monica. So <laughs> meet you there. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much for your time, Carlos. Um, everyone listening, as always, we'll have uh, links in the description and, you know, you can go out there and um, say hi to Carlos, find, find um, everything that they do, the website and, and all that on there as well. So thanks again for your time. It, this has been a really nice conversation. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Future Tribe podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on your podcast app. 